Often in the Buddha's life he would talk about this awakening process as a gradual process in the same way as you might walk into the mist and at a certain point your clothes would be wet but you wouldn't know exactly the moment that that happened that transition there was a sort of gradual deepening into the Dharma or another analogy made was like a walking into the ocean as a gradual shelf deepening into the ocean and then a a sudden dropping into the depth. These are different analogies for the process, process of awakening that although we're awakening and the path is a deepening ever into the timeless Dhamma here and now, the actual awakening process, the practice is a maturing and a gradual undertaking. And so he would also teach the way of awakening in a gradual way. Often it's said that he would teach to prepare, in a way to prepare the mind for the teaching that was particular or peculiar to the Buddhas. Preparing the mind by discussing the Dharma step by step, by reflecting and teaching on the rewards, the joy and the rewards of living virtuously or of generosity uh, as a, a foundation for the practice and then going on to teach the drawback and the impermanence of sensory experience in the conditioned realm so that the mind begins to attune to reality, to the Dharma and reflect uh, a bit more deeply and then to uh, prepare the mind further by talking of the the rewards of simplification and renunciation, the the joy of being able to put things down and to let things go. And in this way, preparing the mind so it would become malleable, become receptive for the teaching that he said. This is one way he talked about this teaching peculiar or particular to the Buddhas. He said, you and I, through not understanding the four truths, have wandered and roamed through this long round of samsara. This, uh, these four truths, these four uh, contemplations that quicken our awakening, that uh, is a teaching that was peculiar to the awakening from the Buddha's, um, from from his awakening, and f- for not really understanding this, we we have this propensity to wander, always seeking, always looking for something, always looking for a resting place. It's called sangsara, something that keeps moving us on and on and on and on and round and round. And it has this taste, this samsara has the taste of uh, uncertainty, it has the taste of stress, it has the taste of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Often when disciples first came to uh, practice, and certainly it's the case for Kirisara and I, or to meet Ajahn Chah, uh, he would, uh, one of the things that he would say, one of the, one of the first times that I met him, Actually, I was living in England at the time in a community of meditators. We were, it was quite a long time ago, we were students and we were involved in bringing the Vipassana retreats of Goenkaji to Britain at that time. That was in the 1970s. And around that same time um, of doing that practice, uh, Ajahn Chah came to visit by invitation of the English Sangha Trust that had been set up in 1956 to invite Buddhist monastics to Britain. So on that invitation, 20 years on from that original founding of that trust, Ajahn Chah came to England with some of his first Western disciples. And by chance they visited this uh, community that I was living in with a lot of other young people. We were very enthusiastic about the Enlightenment path and very dedicated and putting a lot of energy into it. And um, he sat with us together around our dining room table 
and we've been cleaning up and quite excited about this master. He had a tremendous sense of presence. So um, he sat down and I sat next to him. I didn't really understand Buddhist etiquette at that time, that you shouldn't just sit right on top of an elder respected monk, but he didn't seem to mind. I was like, right like three inches away from him. I was like uh, very drawn to him actually. as a very strong um, kind of magnetic presence. And he seemed quite happy just sitting there looking at, looking at us all. And he turned to me and he came and Thai said, Boromai, which means, have you had enough yet? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it was a very profound moment because what I understood was, have you had enough? You know, how how much more experience do you need? How much more stuff do you need? How much more do you need to keep filling yourself? How much more seeking are you going to do? Um, And this would be quite an often way that he would challenge. Or when Kirisara first came to see him in Thailand and uh, he asked him, uh, what are you doing? He said, oh no, I'm studying at Oxford and a thesis and art science and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley. So it's this huge thesis of the universe. So Ajahn Chah picked up his spittoon, like a small kind of bell like this. And, and he just started to say, well, what will you do then? Oh, then I'll go back and be a medical doctor at Harvard and then I'll do this and that. And what will you do then? Well, then I'll do this. And he kept putting his finger round and round the surface. What will you do then? And what will you do then? It's like the mind having these plans going on and on and on. All good stuff, you know. I mean, at least Kittisara had a plan. I didn't actually have a plan. (laughs) (laughs) I had no clue what to do. So, um, so, uh, you know, when he said that, I thought, well, I guess I should probably follow this guy. (laughs) He seems to know something I should know. So this uh, and this is the, the the sense of this samsara. It has this sort of feeling of wandering, looking, and it's tiring. It's exhausting because we never get there. We never actually arrive. If you've noticed, we have moments of arriving, but then there's always a new place to get to, a new distant shore to conquer. <laughs> so in this this teaching, this is the way of stopping. This is a way of coming to rest. And the, the Buddha himself came to this uh, teaching and insight on the, on the night of his awakening, um, which was a very significant uh, realization and opening, sort of completely um, shifted the whole course of his understanding, an understanding that he hadn't arrived at when he first entered his quest. It's said that as he, he grew up in a fairly entitled situation where he was protected and had everything that he would want. So he had the best silks from Benares and the best foods and the most beautiful wines and the most beautiful people around him and the most gorgeous music and a sort of a, a life of pleasure, a life of um, being supported, not having to worry so much about material uh, acquisitions. Father was wealthy, a beautiful wife. And yet there was this feeling of there must be something more. There was some sort of, some deeper disgruntlement at this life. Some feeling that it wasn't, uh, you know, something not quite uh, satisfying. Um, And so it's said that he wandered forth from the confinements of his, uh, where he'd been living and went out into the world around him to look, started to look for something, wanted to look. And instead of finding something that was beautiful or wonderful, inspiring, he was confronted with what is called the, the heavenly messengers, messengers that came to him from uh, heavenly, meaning that they awoke, awakening to him, but they weren't particularly pleasant messengers. The first sign that he saw was someone that was very sick, and someone, second sign, someone very aged, and uh, then a corpse. And it said that, you know, that somehow he hadn't really seen this before. Maybe he had, but there was some way that he really 
it really uh, penetrated into his heart very deeply when he saw uh, these uh, three people in this state of 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 uh, sickness and and uh, and decrepit and then a cold corpse and then it's at that 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 moment that the the buddha to be said that all the vanity of youth left him the vanity of life he had a moment when he realized he too was subject to aging sickness and death he before that he hadn't really thought about it very much i guess he had the assumption that he would be there forever maybe a bit like we do <laughs> that we see these things we know these things but we assume and the mind carries on as if we're going to be here forever that we have some kind of control over this reality of impermanence that it won't somehow touch us and so it actually awoke him and and sh- shook him um and uh he um he came to understand that um that uh you know that there was some that 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 uh, this quest arose in rose in him and around that time he saw the fourth heavenly messenger which was a very peaceful uh, ascetic someone that was a sadhu or yogi of the times and it was a symbol for another way a, a very radical other way of being in life and so this is like a metaphor for us the buddha's life is a metaphor for our own lives for those moments when we leave our comfort zone for those moments when we've been satiated and we've had a lot and in a way that the our modern world is a bit like the buddha at the time or siddhartha as he was then as he was growing up being able to manipulate the conditions of the material realm to give us an optimum comfort uh, even more probably than he had in his day i'm sure you know surely much more where we can just switch a switch and adjust the temperature or close down uh, the you know create sort of screens to keep out the bugs and switch the channel on the tv if we don't like what we're seeing or we can just like the buddha he had these different uh, when he was a siddhartha still he had these different uh, homes one for up in the foothills when it was hot in the plains to chill out and then when it got cold to move back to where it was warm i mean isn't that just like us <laughs> well, you know so we can just travel and move and control the material realm for our comforts this is a lot of the focus of our contemporary uh, civilization has been honed to using the incredible technologies that we have to sustain our the sense and the illusions of our of our comfort and our sustainable uh, permanent lifestyles which are actually in some ways uh you know always susceptible to this impermanence but we don't really see it or we don't live in a way where we take that on board at a deeper level So this quest his quest uh, awakened in him from this confrontation with impermanence at a very profound level is is there anything that transcends death is there is that all there is is that we live this life and it's you know ups and downs and gains and loss and then we die so is there anything else is there anything else to 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 attain to to realize is there a way beyond death and so he entered this quest and realized to do this he had to leave his comfort zone he had to leave the walls of the palace he had to step out of the familiar in the same way that we do when we come on retreat in a little mini way we step out from our comfort zone for the sake of this quest for the same quest is the same inquiry is there peace is there a place of rest is there a stopping to the endlessness of this uh, seeking of the mind and so in in his quest he uh he um he first of all he went to practice with the great realizers of his time the great yogis and he 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 excelled he excelled at, at being able to attain to great subtle states of 
peace and calm. We had absorptions, jhanic absorptions, where he could get to be in such a subtle plane of consciousness that there was not even this perception, no, no perception or non-perception. It's a very, a very subtle state. But then what he realized, he would always come down from that state, always come back into the body, the coarseness of the body. And he, 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 he became very accomplished, and so, so much so that the teachers that he had wanted him to lead their orders. But he realized he didn't want to just settle for being another leader of another order, a great yogi in that way, that he still had some, something was still unresolved. So he carried on and then left. He went off on his own and went deeper into the forest and joined a really extreme bunch of guys that were practicing extreme asceticism. He felt like, well, you know, if I, if I keep coming down into the coarseness of this body, then maybe the body's a problem. Maybe the problem is this form. This world of form is keeping me away from this subtle, whatever it is, this place of peace. So he started to undertake these very extreme practices to try and crush the desire and the needs of the body, feeling that was the problem. And it said, and he was very good at it. You know, he was so good at it that he began to lead these other ascetics. They would follow him and watch him and then try and do what he was doing. And he became their leader. It said that he uh, he started to uh, fast. And he started to even began to feel, he used a lot of willpower you know, to feel that, he, that actually even breathing was coarse. So it said that in the suttas, he tried to stop breathing for a while, breathe very little, just take little sips of breath. <laughs> he didn't want to breathe even. You know, don't want any disturbance. <laughs> and then he didn't want to eat, so he got more and more just down to f- a few grains of rice and started to starve himself, and so that when he touched his belly, he could feel his backbone, or when he touched his head, his hair would fall out. And then he began to, to, uh, to, at one point, he just sort of fell, it would fall over. He'd go to urinate and he would just fall over and collapse and basically was on the edge of death. And it was around this point that he, um, he started to think, uh, this isn't working. <laughs> Might there be another way? said maybe might there be another way to to realize my goal (laughs) and it's around that time it's interesting what happened because at that moment he had a memory it was like a very innocent place in him opened up and from the depths of his own psyche a memory arose in his mind and he had this memory of when he was a child and he was meditating very quietly. He'd removed himself from a festival that was going on in the local village, and he just sat under a tree, and he was just simply watching his breath. And through that practice, he experienced a lot of pleasure. And he realized that pleasure that was an embodied pleasure was, was something that he should, wasn't to be frightened of. It wasn't a pleasure that was going to lead him into suffering. It was a pleasure that he could develop. It was the pleasure of that we've been practicing of, of jhana, of samadhi, of meditation, of gathering. And so he, he decided that he should follow that. That was like a path started to open up for him. But he also realized he was very, very weak and he needed to have some nourishment. And it said at around that point that a woman called Sujata, a young woman, compassionate woman, maybe she'd been looking at this guy and thinking, wow, he's really keen, um, but he's about to die, maybe I can help, maybe I can offer some sustenance to him. And so say that Sujata, this is uh, in a commentary, the Jataka commentary, but it said that he took sustenance from Sujata, she came and offered him some milk rice. In a way, it's like a metaphor for the world of form, the feminine coming to say, this is the form, the world, this isn't a place. It isn't a place you have to reject or crush or get away from. It's a place to open to, that your awakening will be in the world of form, not in spite of it. It's not a splitting away into some abstract nibbana or heaven, away, away somewhere else. 
This awakening is in the midst of form and the forms are honored and received and nourished. And so at that point he, he accepted the food. And of course also at that point his fellow ascetics thought, wow, look at him, he's accepting milk rice and from a woman. He's gone soft. You know, he's lost the way. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's fallen from the path. So they said they abandoned him at that point. And so he was then completely on his own. And no known tracks. He had left all the known tracks of what was available. In a way, the pre-Buddha's awakening, the path was one of extreme asceticism or the, the cultivation of very subtle planes of consciousness through eschewing the world and pushing the world away. Um, but he knew that wasn't the way, that it was still dependent on this control and this will it still wasn't release, it still wasn't freedom. And so he walked uh, to a place that he found, that he said, um, after he'd eaten some food, that was um, that looked uh, very nice, where he realized he could sit down and begin his quest. And during the night of his awakening, as he sat on this uh, this place, the seat of his awakening, which is now, of course, you can go and visit in Budgaya, in India, the Vajra seat, as it's called, the, the seat that held the awakening of the Buddha. He sat through the night, and through that night he had uh, three um, uh, insights called the three knowledges arose within him. And the first knowledge as he describes it, with the abandoning of both the path of pleasure and the path of pain. Um, With his mind, with my mind concentrated, purified, bright, unblenished, rid of imperfection, malleable, steady, I attained, I directed it to knowledge of the recollection of my past lives. I I recollected my manifold past lives, that is, one birth, two births, three births, five, ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand, many eons of world contractions, many eons of world expansions, many eons of world contraction and expansion. There I was so named, of such a clan, with such an appearance. Such was my nutriment, such was my experience of pleasure and pain and my lifespan and the passing away from there. I saw I was reborn elsewhere, and there too I was so named, of such a clan and such an appearance, such was my nutriment. I was reborn here, and I passed away there. Thus, with their aspects and particulars, I recollected my manifold past lives. This was the first knowledge attained by me in the first watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose as happiness in one who dwells diligent, ardent and resolute. This is the classical understanding of the first knowledge of the insight of the Buddha on the night of his awakening. It's uh, that uh, he had saw this endlessness, the endlessness of being born or arising or the self-structure. So some people that's not a metaphor that that sits easily for them, but so one can see it in the way if we see it as a metaphor for our, the template of our understanding, one can see it as a metaphor for the many, many stories that you have lived through, even in this life that you know about, the many shapes and the structures of the self. But the, it said that the Buddha then went on in the second uh, insight, the second knowledge of, the, of his awakening, when he saw all different kinds of beings, many, many different kinds of beings, and how they arose and passed away according to their karma, according to the unfolding of the lawfulness of their karma in many different situations. And the endlessness of that. And then in the third uh, watch of the night... He said uh, he had the knowledge of breaking free from this endless, repetitive 
rebirth, process of rebirth, and this is how he articulated it. Seeking but not finding the house builder, I travel through countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever again. House builder, you have been seen. You shall not build this house again. Your rafters are broken down and your ridge pole is demolished. My mind has attained the unformed nibbana and reached the end of every kind of craving. So this is, uh, this is the moment when he, is, uh, in his teaching, when he talks about the, the, the mind or the, the jitta, the heart, not knowing its true radiancy and luminous nature, not knowing it's the peaceful, undying, deathless nature, the signless nature, the formless nature of its own reality, it it's, tends to move. It moves to identify with these shapes and patternings of the flow of moments of our experience of form and feeling and perception, and memory, sensory consciousness, all that shapes the experience of the self. And then we find this mind finds itself, this jitta, this heart finds itself shaped by the sense of self, living through this kind of an experience, this kind of a memory, this kind of desire, this kind of ambition, and then is destined to be driven by that self-structure. And it's that when he talks about the ridgepole breaking and the demolishing of the house. It's talking about the freeing of that tendency to be shaped and constricted by those forms and by those structures. And so that the unbound Nibbana, that which is unbound, was realized. And that realization was profoundly peaceful. It was a moment of stopping, true stopping, the whole, that ox cart on the first night when Kittisara read from Ajahn Chah that continual pulling of the wheels and uh, you know that track, the endless tracks in the sands of our becoming and of our creations stops, stopped completely. And there was a moment and a realization for the Buddha, it wasn't a moment, it was irreversible. Irreversible liberation of the heart. And it said it was so blissful for him that he spent a whole week just staring with eyes unblinking in devotion at the tree that had protected him through his night of awakening. It's this beautiful relationship that you see that the Buddha begit that has, the Buddha and uh, throughout his life he has with the natural world. And so when he came to teach how to, how to arrive at this insight, he, he, he developed a teaching and th- through that night, through that awakening, he developed a structure of this Four Noble Truths that he taught for people like you and me, that we can reflect on here and now to help bring us into this same realization. And this is why he taught this teaching, because it was a realizable uh, awakening for each of us. And he began his teaching and he, he landed up delivering this first teaching was called the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, the turning of the first wheel of the Dharma to the same disciples that had rejected him, the same yogis that he had practiced with after he had received the milk rice. And when they saw him again, they couldn't but help uh, place a seat for him because he was so radiant. There was something about him. It's like, this is, this is something different. Something's happened to this guy. We, we should listen to him. He's got something important to teach, to say. And so in his teaching, he laid out these four truths. He, called, he, he would make an analogy of himself like a doctor. So the, the structure used would have been quite familiar, the sort of Ayurvedic principle of diagnosing, first of all, the sickness, and then the cause of the sickness, and then the cure to the sickness, and then the remedy that we take to cure the sickness. So in this first cause, the symptom, said there is this experience of dukkha. And in relationship to each of the four truths, as he goes through the diagnosis to the remedy, he gives a practice for us to do. There is this experience of dukkha. 
of unsatisfactoriness, this thirsting, and it, this dukkha uh, needs to be turned to, contemplated. And the second truth, there is a cause that which gives rise to this dukkha, this is a corda, that which is, which, is, which is thirsting and desiring, agitation within the mind that's always seeking, this needs to be let go. There is an ending of dukkha, that needs to be realized. And there is a path that can be developed to bring us into the insight of the ending of dukkha, of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness. So the most subtle level, this dukkha, this mind that's looking, and and for many of us in our retreat and in our practice, we've been seeing this, how there is this seeking to find a home, (laughs) this house builder, seeking to find a place to land in, in, our, in our memories, in our dreams, in our aspirations, in our fantasies, in our thoughts, and, and how that's always tinged with this feeling of, of some sense of dis-ease. So the subtle, most subtle level, this what's called the avicapachya sankara, the, the ignorance, the mind not really knowing its deeper unmoving, aware presence, not knowing its own home. There's this movement to identify with the, with the endless, ceaseless moving of the conditioned world, the conditioned experience of phenomena, to find a home there. And this, this is mixed and tinged with this taste of, of dis-ease. So at the most subtle level, this, this translation of this word dukkha is this feeling of dis-ease or being apart from the whole, being separated, a separative consciousness that creates this feeling of me isolated at some level from the whole, separated out. It's in, it's in it, it, it brings us a feeling of, of, of dis-ease, dislocation, unhappiness. So it's this dukkha that, that can be overcome. There are other dukkhas that the Buddha talked about, the dukkha of being apart from the loved. It's the sort of dukkhas that we can experience every day. We're associated with the unloved. We don't want to be with what we don't want to be with and we're separated from the loved. The dukkha of not getting what we want or getting what we don't want and the dukkha of aging, the dukkha of sickness, the dukkha of impermanence, of death. Uh, so some, some dukkha is, is called dukkha dukkha, that which is just painful or difficult to be with. And some of that is not really what we can avoid. We can't avoid these experiences that we all undergo in life. We can't avoid being parted from the love. We can't avoid sickness. We can't avoid aging. We can't avoid death. But the dukkha that we can avoid is the reaction and relationship to those experiences. It's the extra dukkha that we add on top, the extra suffering that we project onto the reality of what actually is the Dharma the dharma of life, the nature of life, by our demand that it should be somehow different than what it is. So Ajahn Chah said in the second noble truth, he would put it very simply, is say that the mind constantly caught up in the wanting and the not wanting, the desire and aversion, projecting that onto the self, I shouldn't be like this, it shouldn't be like that, projecting it onto the world around us, generates, we generate, we, it's actually the ignorance of the mind generating the suffering that we then are destined to live through. No one's doing it to us. We often think someone's doing it to us, but we're doing it to, to ourselves. Wanting to get something more than what is available. <laughs> like trying to squeeze the last drop out of life to satiate us. And if you notice, we've been doing that for a long time. We're squeezing the last drop out, out of the planet to satiate us, and it somehow is not working. It's a very mature moment. 
actually it's a pretty disastrous moment, but it's a moment in that gives rise to the same moment that the Buddha had at the night of that uh, he, when he began his quest, when he realized this unsatisfactoriness, that he had everything he wanted, still wasn't enough. It's this moment that can actually begin to take the mind inward, instead of constantly being scanning the world for this, whatever it is that we want to satiate us. It does in moments, and then it doesn't. So in, in Thailand... For example, when one experiences this, what's called nibida, this sense of dispassion, you know, where you feel like, like uh, when Ajahn Chah said, who am I? It's like, have you had enough yet? He's talking about this experience of nibida. It's, it's an, you know, it's, I've had enough, but it's not enough. You know, in, in in our culture, we say, well, you should go shopping or something, or, <laughs> you know, distract ourselves. Well, you know, it's, uh, it, but it's considered a spiritually mature moment and culturally maybe a mature moment for us to realize we've been looking in the wrong place. And it's not going to do it. There's another kind of journey to make. There's a in, in the Zen Buddhism, they call it the great reversal, where the mind starts to return home, stops running out into the world and suffering there, and it starts to return back into the heart, into this deepest home, to its home, its deepest true home. So this is really the territory of the third noble truth, this returning, this turning back. When we start to uh, as, um, release the second noble truth, uh, the, the, the thirsting of the mind, the, the practice is to let go, to let be. Moments like we practice here on the retreat, it's not easy to do, but moments of just letting be, releasing, and then out of that releasing of the agitation and the craziness of the seeking mind, the thirsting mind, the wanting mind, there's moments of opening to a deeper dimension that's always here, which is peaceful, which is inviting, which is waiting for our return. This deep, aware, present, immediate, imminent, awakened knowing of the heart, which is a profoundly luminous, And so turning, turning to this, uh, Ajahn Mahabur, one of the great uh, Thai meditation masters from the forest school, said, when dukkha stops, nothing remains. When there's this stopping, the stopping, nothing remains. All that remains is entirely pure awareness. It's the purity of the citta, this heart. If you want, you can call it nibbana. If you have to give it a name, it's actually nameless, formless. Can't pin down pure consciousness. You can't put it in a religion. You can't capture it. It doesn't belong to anyone. It can't be owned. It can't be controlled. It's the place of real freedom. <laughs> Everything else is up for manipulation. <laughs> it's the place for us to realize it's our home. It's our birthright. It's the place of non-struggle. It's the place of unhooking in our practice of this. The karmic wheel still turns. The stuff still moves. But there's not the movement to identify, to struggle, to push and to pull. There's a moment of release. In this, another Thai master, Ajahn Lee, said... This is the change of lineage, you call it change of lineage, when there's that shift from the ever-wandering in samsara, the ever-seeking, to the great return and the moment of the realization, the moments of returning home. He said, when the mind gains change of lineage, passing from the mundane to the transcendent, it will see what dies and what doesn't. It will blossom as butthole, the awareness that knows no cessation. It's not arising and it's not passing. It just is. It's just such, just present.
simply present, simple, the most obvious. So this is the realm this of realization that fruits gradually, moments, tasting, tasting, we taste, we said the same taste he had is the same taste we have. It's the same taste, it's like the ocean. So you taste in Nibbana, it's like the ocean. Wherever you taste it, it's the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, it has the taste of salt. Wherever you taste, it has the taste of peace, has the taste of freedom, has the taste of liberation, has the taste of stopping, has the taste of relief. At first, maybe there's not some big earthquake, maybe just a subtle taste of relief, like putting the burden down. This uh, Ajahn Chah once when he was walking with his disciples and he pointed to um, some boulders and he said, are those boulders heavy? And the disciples said, yes, Ajahn, they're very, very heavy. He said, well, they're not if you don't pick them up. (laughs) (laughs) So in the third noble truth, we're practicing emptying our boulders, you know, all those boulders that we pick up or everything that we that we uh, that we kind of cling to and hold on to all the worries and the concerns and the things that we you know it's not that we shouldn't be responsive but the extra burden that weighs us down so we just put them back and leave them where they are we don't always have to hold and lug the boulders around we can put them down and breathe a bit more easefully and recognize the simplicity in the invitation of our natural state of being. Always inviting, as we chanted in the morning. So this magga hatakilesawa, this path that to be developed, this is the fourth truth. Through this practice of these four truths, these practices of turning to dukkha, not projecting it out, or it's your fault, or it's because I'm a bad person that I feel this. No, it's a dispassionate turning to there is this experience of struggle, needs to be open to and investigated, and then explored what gives rise in this moment to the extra struggle that we're projecting onto the moment. Whatever that is, Yes, maybe it's dukkha dukkha, it's painful, but what is the extra piece that we do? And then to release from that, to let go, and then to taste the piece of letting go, and then this cultivation of the path, this eightfold path, this path that leads to when, when we understand, when we have this understanding and deepening our understanding into these four truths, it's the foundation of the first aspect of the path. It's like we see clearly. We have the right, what's called right view. The view is according to Dharma. And from that, the intentionality is aligned with the Dharma. And the action and speech and the livelihood, everything that emerges. And it's not that the path just stops as not just a one-fold path, just sit. That's it. This is just the practice. It's a path of being engaged, being right action, right livelihood, right speech, being involved, engaged in the world, informed from this deeper wisdom. And so this this path, as it comes into fruition, this is how the Buddha talked about it. One who has understanding and great wisdom does not think of harming themselves, does not think of harming another, does not think of harming self or the other. They think of their own welfare. They think of others' welfares and the welfare of the world. In this way, they, demonst- they demonstrate great wisdom. And so this activity of the path is... Like the Buddha himself, he had the realization on the night of his awakening, great bliss, great awakening, great peace. And he was very tempted. He felt this is too subtle to teach. This is too difficult to communicate. 
In some ways, the Dharma is beyond words. You can't communicate it. There's, uh, in one teaching, you say, These, this Dharma cannot be described. Words fall silent before it cannot be captured. So part of him, big part of him felt, why bother? You know, and it said that he was, you know, he felt so subtle, so difficult to communicate. He might as well go off maybe to live in the Himalayas and just live out peacefully the rest of your life. I mean, you must have had the feeling, <laughs> why bother? <laughs> and it said at that point, all the Davas freaked out because they've been watching this guy thinking he's going to have the breakthrough. <laughs> you know, he's someone we put our money on this one. You know, this is like he's going to shake right down to the foundations of Mara the Satan, the tempter, that which deludes and keeps consciousness, human consciousness, bound in ignorance. He's the one who's going to crack it open, split the atom. And he's about to give up and not communicate what he understood. And so they sent down Brahma Sahampati, a great angelic being, came down from the heavenly realms and appeared before the Buddha and said, there are those with a little dust in their eye, and out of compassion for them, please go forth and teach, because there will be those that will understand. And so Brahma Sahampati came from the world of the, f- the formless and subtle creation, bringing into subtle creation. And, and in this way, the Buddha's work wasn't complete until he brought this understanding into form, to demonstrate it in the world of form. It's not just about abdicating into some formless, subtle space and hanging out there, but it's about testing our wisdom in the realm of form. And we do that through the activity, as the Buddha did, of compassion for the welfare of ourselves, for the welfare of others, and for the welfare of the world, particularly at the time that we're in, when this world is at a cusp when we've, we've squeezed everything we can almost from this poor, aching, screaming planet down to the last drop of oil. <laughs> well, at least that's where we're heading, you know, at great expense. You know, and, and still we're not satiated, still we're roaming in samsara. So it's a ripe moment for this message, for this awakening, for this transformation, for this true returning home, for the stopping of the madness of the mind, for the turning back to know the place where it finishes, the place of peace, the place of resolution, and from that the arising of the consideration how to be in this world for the welfare of self, of other, and for all beings out of compassion. This is the path that the Buddha walked. And it's the path that he demonstrated and left as an example for us. An example, yes, it's challenging, but it's doable. This is a a teaching for humans, people like you and me. Each of us can do this. Each of us can realize these truths and bring them to fruition. So the Buddha said, when teaching this path, suppose monks and nuns, a person wandering through a forest, we see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people of the past. They would follow it and would see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts. A delightful place. Then the person would inform the king or the royal minister, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path, an ancient road travelled upon by people in the past. I followed it and saw an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or the royal minister would renovate the city, and some time later that city would become successful and prosperous, well populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So too, monks and nuns, I saw the ancient path, the ancient path traveled by the perfectly enlightened ones of old. And what is that ancient path 
that ancient road. It is just this, this noble eightfold path. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I followed that path and by doing so I have directly known aging and death, its origin and its cessation and the way leading to peace. I have explained this path to the monks and nuns. I have explained this path to the lay followers. This is the spiritual life that has become successful and prosperous, extended, popular, widespread, and well-proclaimed among devas and humans. So may we take the opportunity that we have these uh, few days of our retreat together, the opportunity we have through this lifetime, whatever is afforded to us, to continue to cultivate this path this very practical and tangible path of awakening, and to have faith, as is said in the suttas, that it's this path activity itself, the moments of applying, the moments of mindfulness, the moments of presence, the moments of being with the breath, they're not wasted. They're planting seeds, planting seeds that give cause and rise for breaking up that which obstructs this full realization of the peace realized by the Buddha and left for us, uh, communicated for us in the, in the way of his path so we can too taste that same peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.